Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Rent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Mississippi has a complex, diverse, and rich history. It's the birthplace of America's music, home to musical greats like Robert Johnson, Jimmy Rogers, and even Elvis Presley. Beyond the state's musical heritage, the state has helped shape modern economic development and corporate recruitment, going back as far as 1929 when Columbia, Mississippi Mayor Hugh White helped launch the Balance Agriculture with Industry Act, eventually adopted in the 1930s. But we want to look at the future of economic development, and more specifically in Mississippi. Our guest today is the managing partner of Economic Leadership LLC, Ted Abernathy. Ted works in more than a dozen states to help develop economic strategies. He has 35 years of experience in directing economic and workforce development programs. His experience includes almost nine years as the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for the Research Triangle Regional Partnership in North Carolina, where during his eight years, he helped generate 65,000 new jobs and almost $10 billion in new investments. Ted is no stranger to the state of Mississippi, having worked to develop economic plans for the eight states covered by the Delta Council. Ted is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he holds a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University. He also is a graduate of the Economic Development Institute and is an Eisenhower Fellow for Global Economics. Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, we had a chance to talk about a week and a half ago uh, about economic development and the future of it in Mississippi. You know, this is the birthplace of America's music, also what we call today economic development with the uh, Balanced Agriculture with the Industry Act. But we have also have, including our history, a very complex road to navigate as we look at the future of economic development and in a state like Mississippi. Well, you're not alone. The uh, The entire world is going through a series of adjustments these days, trying to react to all the changes that are happening. And the only thing I'm sure of is that the change is going to happen a little bit more rapidly in the future. So Mississippi has challenges, uh, but t- so does every place we work. We talked about the urbanization of America and how that might affect Mississippi. First, define that term, urbanization of America. Yeah, urbanization is actually a global phenomenon. It's happening in the U.S. It's been uh, it's been accelerating for almost a hundred years, and that just means that more and more people are living in fewer and fewer dense places. So where we spread out in America for about two hundred years and raced across the country, and everybody was looking for open land, and you know you have those visions of the Oklahoma land rush and everybody trying to find their place. What we're seeing today is. Uh, all over the world that cities are dominating economic growth. And so most of Americans, uh, most of American output is in our cities, and we see more and more people congregating in those few cities. That puts real pressure on the rural areas. Place I grew up in rural North Carolina. And uh, so those impacts are something we have to adjust to. The state of Mississippi, population of about 2.9 million people right now, uh, backbone of our economy for many years was agriculture. How does that affect our future with this increasing urbanization? And we only have a handful of maybe mid-size urban areas. Yeah. I mean, agriculture never goes away from being important because we all like to eat. And uh, so uh, growing up around a farm, uh, you have to forever be thankful to the people who are providing food for you. 
But it used to take about 70% of our population to provide the food we needed. And today it takes about 2%. And that 2% produce a little bit more output. And so the question for you is with the wealth that gets created from the, uh, the agriculture economy today, what do you do with it? What does it mean? And uh, that means that fewer and fewer jobs uh, to produce that. So uh, historically, and that was part of the act that you referenced at the beginning, is how do you take what you have and convert it into a way to give people a, a quality of life and a standard of living that you want them to have? So that's the challenge. Governor Phil Bryant likes to say, in Mississippi, we make things. We are proud of our sector of especially advanced manufacturing. And he relates that a lot to the agricultural background because it's uh, get your hands in there. We make things. We used to grow things. We still grow a lot of things. We still excel in agriculture. But he credits with our uh, gains in advanced manufacturing to that agricultural background. Is there a correlation there? I think that uh, today, skilled labor in general is correlated with with people who like to touch things, who uh, who have uh, a manual dexterity about them. So yes, there's a history. Uh, all four of my grandparents were first generation textile workers. Uh, they all came off the farm. They never left the farm actually. And unfortunately, that just meant you had more farm work for your kids to do uh, when when you were over at the textile mills. Um, it meant that you had a discipline. It meant that you knew what hard work was. It meant that you were innovative. You could use your hands. You could innovate. And uh, so, I, so I agree with Governor Bryant that that's a, a, a thing that is important to the manufacturing industry. Uh, but manufacturing has changed also. As you look today, uh, the, the growth of robotics, the automation, the growth of global markets, uh, what it takes to be a, a real uh, competitive in manufacturing uh, changes daily. And so we've, uh, we see the big uh, chases for large automotive plants, but, but most of manufacturing in America is still based in smaller places with smaller businesses. And they're struggling also to be as automated as they can be to, to build that competitiveness and also to have the global markets that the big guys have. So there are challenges even in the manufacturing field. And those big projects need a big workforce. And uh, everybody competes for them because they grab the headlines. You get the pat on the back. You get to promote that in your marketing efforts, or I do actually, in my job. And they're important. Those wins are important. But again, it's the small ones. You and I were talking earlier, and you mentioned that you're seeing a slowing in the growth of our workforce. What do you mean by that? And not mis- not just Mississippi's, but America. We, uh, we're having fewer children uh, by a lot. Uh, today, we... Uh, don't actually have enough children to replace us. So we are uh, a country that is facing the same issues that Japan has been facing for a while, that lots of Europe is facing, that uh, without an influx of immigration, you start shrinking as a country. Um, You can make an argument that that's not a terrible thing, that because automation is going to replace people, that there's some balance there. But it's hard to build a growth economy without the growth. So uh, what we're seeing is uh, a combination of retirees from a big baby boomer age, fewer children, uh, more restrictions on immigration, and as such, uh, and declining participation rates, which has gotten a lot of attention also, as such, you have fewer workers. Now, I said earlier that more of them are moving to urban areas. So the challenge for places like Mississippi is how do I hold on to my workforce? Biggest concern here is that when a company's looking, uh, the number one thing they look for, the top determining factor of where they're going to move, where they're going to invest, is workforce. So if you're 
statistics, and we all know that big data drives decisions these days, if your statistics show that you're going to be losing workforce, then you have a bigger challenge. So how do you attract the workers that are needed? And then past that, and I'm sure we'll get to this because every economic development conversation has this, is what do you do about the skills mismatch? Even if you have the bodies, do they have the right skill set? But right now, one of the real questions is, are we going to have the bodies? And so when you look at projections out for 10 years for workforce, most Mississippi counties are actually losing workers. If that's the determining factor on where new investment is, puts the challenge on economic development even harder. How, what are you seeing in successful communities that are retaining people? What are they doing differently? Well, uh, some millennials, uh, we, we almost got 10 minutes without talking about millennials, but millennials uh, have a set of uh, things that they want in life. And uh, some of those things tend to congregate around urban cores. So in Mississippi, you have a few urban centers, but they're relatively small compared to the national centers. And so trying to retain more of your college graduates or your skilled high school graduates or with you know career and technical education is going to be uh, dependent on having places that people want to live. Do you have the safety, the health, the housing, the education, the recreation, uh, the the culture that they're looking for? Do you have the types of housing? Is it walkable? Does it all of those things that are quality of place that drive decisions for people? Because people have the ability to make those decisions, and as my mother would say, they vote with their feet, and all you got to do is watch and see where they go. You know, it's interesting. About four years ago, I had a discussion with another consultant, and we were talking about how we market the state uh, in our recruitment efforts and talking about quality of life. And he stopped us right there and he goes, everybody's got quality of life. You know, go on. They wanted this. And within the next 12 to 24 months, we're back to quality of life uh, because of the generation that is entering the workforce. Yeah, I I think measuring quality of life has always been the challenge. And my quality of life determining factors might be different than yours. But the data would show that uh, people care about safety. So they look at crime rates. They care about the cost of living. So they look at housing prices. They care if their kids can get a good education. So they look at the quality of both public and charter and private and parochial schools. Um, They care if there's a place to play outside or a place to hunt or a place to take your kids to a park. Uh, they do care about those things. Now, they, they mostly care about getting a job. So if you don't have the jobs, then the rest of this doesn't work. But, uh, but they do care. And today, with information uh, at your fingertips, uh, you can assess places pretty simply. And uh, I don't think I would underestimate people's ability to compare and contrast where they want to be. So Does quality of life the top determining factor for a company? No, it's not. It 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 doesn't doesn't ever show up as near the top. But what does show up is skilled labor, and so if the quality of life is how you make a decision, then it comes into play. And skilled labor, we're really using uh, an old or outdated model of how we educate the next generation, because having that skilled labor pool uh, is vital when company is determining whether or not they want to locate in a community. We have more people graduate high school today than we ever have, and we have more people graduate college than we ever have. Uh, But we also have employers that overwhelmingly, when you uh, survey them, say that they can't find people with skills they need. So one of two things is true. Either they want skills that are higher than people are capable of, and I'm not going to choose that one, or 
we're not teaching the skills they need. You can debate whether the role of education is, is as a workforce training program or not. That's, that's a legitimate debate, and we can have it someday. Um, but somebody's got to train people for the workforce. And so whether we do that today, we don't have assembly lines that work the way they did in the 1920s when we created classroom training and taught everybody to learn the same thing and do things the same way. That's just not our world. So how do we change so that people are adaptable, so that they have basic knowledge of, of reading comprehension and math, but they also have the life skills needed and the work skills. They know how to communicate. They know how to problem solve. They know how to work in teams. Uh, and then past that, we can teach them to be bricklayers or phlebotomists or whatever it is uh, and how to integrate with technology. So there's a whole series of skills, and we can't reduce it to simplicity or we're missing a lot of what's needed. How important are the soft skills? I remember growing up and my father, you know, I'm four or five years old, and he's like, firm handshake, look somebody in the eye, you know, be courteous and respectful uh, when you're meeting somebody and things of that nature. And with more electronic communication, we do less face-to-face. Are we missing out on those soft skills and how important are they today? I, they're they're critical. Uh, you can't downplay the fact that people still expect you to be motivated, to be honest, to be responsible, to be able to communicate. I mean, those are all just prerequisites to any success in work. You know, I, I don't tell par- parents, I get asked the question all the time, shouldn't we just take those devices away from our kids because it's just ruining them? They can't talk to anybody. And I tell them no, because those devices are going to be integrated in everything they do the rest of their life. What you ought to do is have a conversation with them about those devices. If you want to be real smart, have them explain those devices to you so that what you're doing every day is having a conversation about technology and how it's used in your, in your household, in your office. But it's not. we're not going backwards. We never have and we never will. So the tech that is part of our lives today will just keep accelerating and there's going to be more of it. Let's learn to use it with the soft skills so that we're not – pitting some debate about whether it's one or the other. It's both. When I'm building a team, one of the most important things I look for in a new team member is critical problem solving. Mm -hmm. And has technology taken away some of that ability or has it just shifted it and changed the way we solve problems? Because I mean, I'm guilty of it as anybody just going to my device and Googling it, looking it up, reading a Wikipedia, whatever it is to find out more uh, as opposed to the way I learned to to do research and to solve problems. Yeah, technology is a tool. Uh, it is no more or less yet so far. When it when AI becomes sentient, then we can all have a discussion about what technology is. But right now, the the car that your mother drove you to the library in was a tool. Your your you know smartphone that's now eleven years old. That's how long we've had smartphone is a tool. Uh, when they had a microfiche reader, it was a tool. Uh, the question is not. Do you know how to find something? I mean, you, there's always been ways to find something. It's how fast can you find it? And when you find it, do you have any idea what it means? Does it actually answer a question for you? Uh, you know, the, the answer to any question is not a static thing. It's applied. So uh, technology is going to allow you to be faster, more productive. It's going to free you up to have more critical thinking. So uh, it does not stop you from thinking. Now, if you spend all day doing, you know, a single video game that you you are now the world master at, then you better find a job in that video game world. But otherwise, technology is a tool. Learn to use the tools. So what you're saying at the end of the day, 
it's still what you do with the information that you get, not how you got there. For most uh, jobs you have today, it is how do you manage all sorts of information? Uh, that, how do you uh, separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you take the noise that you get with data all the time? Uh, our company spends a lot of time doing competitive analysis for places. How is it that a place measures? Well, doing the data is, you know, it's an Excel program. We can show you the data. Nobody pays us to do the data. They pay us to explain what the data means and what you ought to do about it. So, you know, the, the tools are just to get you the first step. Technology disruption uh, going to be very important uh, for the future of all states and the health of business climate. How's that changing us? Yeah, so technology is disrupting just about every industry, um, and we've seen it uh, in manufacturing, and you've seen it here in Mississippi. Uh, you know, an auto ma- manufacturing plant today doesn't look anything like it used to look. There's a lot fewer people and a lot more robotics, and the people that are there make more money and are more skilled and produce more cars. But what's starting to change pretty rapidly, and, and we're starting to see this everywhere and talk about it, is what's going on in retail and the ability to buy things online. And if you're in a bigger city today, the Amazon two-hour deliver anything to your door that you want is disrupting retail pretty pretty significantly. The nature of, of how we operate is disrupting office space and retail space. But the next big ones are what's going to happen in healthcare? How is technology going to shift healthcare? Um, you know, we're already doing telemedicine. We're already – I'm already having appointments with my doctor that are 30-second video conferencing rather than me going to the doctor. What happens next? If you think about what surgery has used to be like and what outpatient surgery is today, well, that's just the beginning. So embedded sensors and, and continuous monitoring, all that stuff is coming fast. That will be disruptive. Each industry that we have, look at what happened with banking and, and automatic tellers. Look at You pick example after example. Now, the disruption is happening in every industry. And if you just think faster, cheaper, more personalized, uh, and, and more uh, accelerated, you're going to figure out where technology is headed. I use the word disruption. Really, I think we've just replaced the word innovation in many respects. And by doing that, though – the root of disruption to disrupt, and I've had this conversation before in another podcast, can be jarring. Are people afraid when we use that word to embrace it? This is a disruption. It's something I don't understand or don't know, or I'm going to have to learn something new. So psychologists would tell you that one of the greatest fears that people have is fear of the unknown. And so when you're facing change, everybody's afraid of something they can't see. I don't know what's going to happen. So, yes, they are. And uh, innovation can be incremental. You can just get better at something. And so an incremental change is something that people can sort of ease into. It's the frog in the boiling water routine. Uh, Disruption tends to be a little bit more. It's I used to have this 8-track player, and now I have this MP3 player. And that's not the same thing because I don't have to carry anything. I don't have to buy anything this way. Disruptions are are more jarring to people, and uh, they're harder to get people to accept. They're harder to accept, but if they're the right type of – and they don't all work. I should just say that. Mm-hmm. And we've been disrupted by things that disappeared. We don't have them anymore. But when you start thinking about what's going on in photography and what that did and to, to entire industries, uh, that's what I'm talking about with, with technological shifts. And we expect quite a few of those in the coming years. Leadership critical uh, for any organization, for any community. Uh, how important 
Is it supporting the economic well-being of our communities? And I'm talking about changes in government or leadership uh, in Mississippi. Again, small state, uh, a lot of smaller communities, but leadership, we always say, is the key. Yeah, leadership, a smaller community can, leadership can be a, a positive because you're dealing with people you know, you have hardwired the relationships, and if those are positive relationships, it allows you to be nimble. Uh, Leadership's an interesting thing in America. We're you know we're cowboys. We don't actually like leaders. We'd rather you know we'd rather lead ourselves. But uh, in today's world of of common knowledge or community knowledge, we need we need leaders that know more than we know about subjects that we don't have the time or the inclination to know about. So we need leaders that are future focused, that are critical thinkers, that have to make choices. And then we also have to learn how to follow better. Uh, we're not we're not as good. You know, we always say we don't have enough leaders. We also don't have enough followers because if you want to learn enough about privatized uh, infrastructure funding, well, go learn it. Then be a leader. It's great. But you've got to trust also and be good followers. I think leaders today, uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard because people are afraid of the future. They want you to know it for them. And as a leader, you want to know everything you can know before you make a decision. And if you wait long enough, then everything changed already. You don't know anything again. So real tough in economic development, having a, understanding where you are. There's three critical things. You have to understand what your current position is, what the changes are happening external to you that are going to impact you. And then you have to be able to set a course that's very specific to where you want to get to and be able to carry out those actions. Sounds simple, but real hard. Really hard. And, you know, in today's climate, we see a move back to a more of sort of an ethnocentric type of view instead of a global view in some respects. And understanding that we may be working with somebody in Japan today and those borders don't really exist in the globe, but people use them as barriers sometimes restricting access to uh, maybe future growth opportunities without taking a global view. Globalism gets a bad rap as well in some cases. Uh, and it always has. I mean, uh, you know, when you had the East India Trading Company in Britain, it got a bad rap because it did good things and bad things. Globalization has both positive and negative impacts. And, and any honest economist knows that. But in the long run, it's built on some fairly simple principles that if uh, that you should do what you're good at and let somebody else do what they're good at. And if you can share that, you move everybody forward. Uh, globalization hasn't been a straight line either. We've had rocky patches throughout life. And we've measured globalization in the past by the movement of goods and money and people. But today we're measuring it by the movement of data. So there's no way to put a fence around data. And as you know, it's called the democratization of information. And as we share that and we share innovation around the world, um, it becomes easier and easier to do business. And it's more and more and more business is virtual, is data-based, then the fences become harder and harder to put up. So I doubt globalization is going backwards anytime soon. What about taking a, an honest look at the reality of change? And not just an honest look, but embracing the realities that are to come because we tend to hold on tightly to what we already know. Like you mentioned earlier, it's the fear of the unknown, both at the leadership level down to the worker level, accepting that reality. How tough is that? From a human standpoint, it's one of the hardest things we do. Um, you know, we like comfort. We like to hardwire ourselves into things that we're comfortable with. And the idea that we might not know something 
or we might be required to do something that is outside of our comfort zone is very hard. The question is always sort of put in the simple terms of the, the old Wayne Gretzky quote of, scale, of, of skating to where the puck will be. Because if you skate to where the puck is today and it's moving, then you're never going to catch it. So I think, uh, I think we're learning and we'll get there. To go back to your Wayne Gretzky quote, you know, don't go where the puck is, but go to where it will be. The acceleration of technology over the last several decades, we have to move faster and faster because uh, the technology does accelerate. How do we get ahead of the curve? Um, and again, specifically to Mississippi in a small state with a smaller population, smaller workforce participation. Yeah, I think it's also maximizing your resources. Uh, you have to do scenario planning for what you want to be. You have to know as a state where you're trying to head and, and also as, as parts of the state, regions of the state, counties. You have to continuously monitor and you're not going to get it all right. Uh, there are tangents in technological advancement that we can't predict. And so you have to accept that. I think that having a, a smaller state where people know each other and have built trust up over time because they've, they've learned to anticipate each other and, and there's past history there allows you to build the type of system that predicts where you think you want to go and then helps you create that. And there's a, another old famous quote about the best way to predict the future is to invent it. So you as a state can pick the places. And I, I'm not suggesting that you pick industries and do that. I'm suggesting that you understand where you're going to be in the future, where you're going to put your concentrations of investments. And I think that helps. And so, you've, you know, you've put a pretty deep investment these days into automotive. And automotive is not going away, but I think anybody who thinks automotive looks like it looks today probably have missed everything about fuels and autonomous vehicles and everything else. How are you going to get ready for that? And are you going to build the training that allows your workers to change? That's different than what's happening in some other industries that you might not be as interested in here in Mississippi. So I think that uh, having a, a hardwired way of looking toward the future and trying to make the investments that allow you to be competitive is the best way to go. What investment we are making right now, and it's happening in the building where we're recording, is the Mississippi Coding Academy. Public-private partnership with the Mississippi Community College Board, Innovate Mississippi, Mississippi Development Authority. They have the first class going on, uh, students, about 14 to 17 students, learning coding. From day one, they had did not require any previous coding experience. It's a small group. There's approximately 1,400 open coding positions in Mississippi at some level. Kellogg Foundation also just granted an additional $1 million to expand this. We don't have any measurables yet, but how important is this to our future in across multiple sectors? So when you, uh, when you talk to businesses, and you, we, we don't talk to businesses enough to say, what are the skills that you anticipate needing in the future? What are the things that you're going to value? Uh, when we ask businesses those things, then that's what you then ought to be teaching. So coding is one of those things that I think people expect to expand. And um, so you're giving a few people, 14, I think you said, a real step forward as to what they can do in life and, and how they can be successful. I think it's it's very important to continue to look for the skills that are going to be needed. And I I don't think that the role of computers or the role of technology is going to diminish any in the future. So I think what you ought to do is watch this first group really closely, see what happens to them, go out of your way to make sure they're successful so that you can get the next million dollars from uh, the next foundation, uh, and then make sure that 
there are more kids, but also more adults. I think one of the things we do uh, that is dangerous is we focus most of our workforce training on 15 to 25-year-olds. And what happens is that when the 40-year-old or the 50-year-old all of a sudden loses their job, then we are rarely able to retool them. And so when we're looking at future of workforce and work skill upskilling, which is learned, this is the new term people are using, then we ought to make sure we can do it for everybody. Uh, one of the fastest growing populations for workers right now is the over 60. I don't think that's particularly happy news being my age, but it is, uh, it is you know, people are living much longer. Uh, that's something to be celebrated. But people are going back. Everybody who retires that I know, all my friends end up uh, failing at retirement and going back and finding something else to do. How do we make that meaningful? One last question here uh, as we're running out of time. But Mississippi has unique challenges. Every state's got challenges. Uh, Every location. We accept that. Perception versus reality. Being in the Deep South and our complex history, a lot of people have preconceived notions of what they'll find in Mississippi versus the reality from a marketing perspective, you know, how can we continue to change that perception? A lot of times when we get them here, it's a very eye-opening, positive experience. The hard part for us sometimes is getting them to come here and give us a chance. Yeah, I get asked a lot about the glass that's either half full or half empty. Um, and so my first answer is the glass has four ounces in it. Uh, it is that's a more specific answer. Uh, so don't for a second believe that the data doesn't matter. It does. People spend a lot of time looking at it and the information that they can get Mississippi from a numerical standpoint expands every day. That said, people also like stories. They, they use data by putting it into stories that they already know. And so Mississippi has to tell its story. And it has to be relevant, and it has to be authentic, and it has to be uh, a story that connects to the type of people that you need, whether those are workers that are moving back to Mississippi or are coming here for the first time or businesses that are seeing opportunity here. Uh, you have to use both an ongoing you know, zest to improve those numbers with a pride and an ability to tell your story in Mississippi that resonates with people who aren't from here. If you're from Mississippi, most people love it and they tell me that immediately. Uh, I get down here fairly often and there are great parts of the state to see and to experience. If I was moving a company here, the first thing I'd do is run data. And that data would tell me whether you were in the game or not in the game. Uh, if you were, the next thing I'd do is start looking at the qualitative data that you can only get from people that are here. And from the stories and the examples people here tell, I would spend a lot of time on those. Ted Abernathy looking into his crystal ball for us on the future of economic development in Mississippi and really across the country. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.